Welcome to X Chateau. X Chateau. The podcast that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights. With your host, Robert Vernick and Peter Young. Welcome to this episode of X Chateau. We're continuing our series on wine PR. And today we have a special guest, Paul Yanan, the VP of Wine at Calendula and Partners. Paul, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me, Peter and Robert. Certainly appreciate you shining a light on uh, us poor fellows in the in the trenches working hard for the wine industry. Maybe you could give us a little introduction about your personal background, but also an overview of kind of the work at Calendula and Partners. Well, for starters, you'll probably notice my accent's a bit funny. I'm Australian. You know, working in the American wine industry is something that I never really truly imagined I'd be doing. You know, I've grown up in wine my entire life, working as a marketer, a writer, PR person for the Australian wine industry. As Australians, we know how far away we are from the rest of the world. So when it comes to getting the great clients, the you know interesting regions, you know it doesn't really happen all that often in Australia. So I made the move to come to the United States back in 2010 and continue the wine focus that I've had my entire life. And being able to be this close to you know the major regions of Europe as well as the major up-and-coming regions of South America, has certainly given me a great deal more insight into the rest of the wine world outside of my Australian little bubble. I joined Philandro Partners about eight years ago, focusing once again mostly on the European side of things. Our agency started in 2006, and today we are the largest fine wine agency in the United States. We've got about 55 people in total. So when you say this close, Paul, is that... Your proximity being in New York, I believe, or is it more about the clients you serve? I think it's a combination of things. It's also a mental closeness as well. You know, Australians, we travel because we are far away. You know, you don't get to try the wines of Canada. You don't get to try the wines of the great wines of Europe unless you're in a really, really privileged position. I used to be a sommelier as well. So I was quite lucky enough to be able to try these wines while I was working the floor. But take that away from person in Australia, and you're pretty limited to what's just in the local market. So you don't really have uh, that global perspective that perhaps American PR people do. And that's, I think, what is one of the fundamentally exciting things about why foreign wineries work with Americans is there's a different outlook to how we view the marketing side of things, how we view technology, how we view communication. We'll talk about that a little bit more, but there's so much storytelling that a lot of Europe doesn't truly understand when it comes to the PR side of things. But, you know, geography also helps as well. So, Could you give us a sense at Calandro and Partners what you think of as the scope of the PR world with respect to wine businesses? U.S. market's really, really, you know, the most important market for, for almost every region and country out there. And being able to educate clients on the full suite of possibilities when it comes to PR is really important. So, Obviously, PR is traditionally rooted in media relations. You know, that's the grassroots effort. That's the core foundation of, you know, how PR has been built over the years. But now with the move into, you know, digital, you have a lot more technology and platforms and ways of communicating that didn't exist historically. So you're seeing amazing uses of TikTok, Twitch, you know, more legacy social media now like Instagram and Facebook. It's weird to talk about those brands as being legacy (laughs) for social media, but it's true. You also have, obviously, the evolving landscape when it comes to events. 
being in New York, obviously, we're, we're gifted with an incredible fine dining culture. And that's always changing and always moving. And so for clients to be able to understand where they fit in the market and how they can utilize the accounts, they can utilize the talent, will always be able to keep them one step ahead of the sales game. Cool. Not to sidetrack us too much, but do wine-specific media things come into play? So I'm thinking of there's, you know, like Wine Berserkers, where we interviewed one of the moderators, uh, Charlie Fu, Seller Tracker, or Vivino, or Delectable. How do any of those play into your world? I think when it comes to those kinds of sort of user interfaces, I think the way people utilize language, the way that people utilize sort of product recommendations is really, really important. Obviously, these technologies started. So we really, really do have a lot of history with being able to track what creates buzz, what can beget more, you know, awareness and visibility for a brand. So we have the case studies to back it up because of that history. Whereas in Europe, they're still kind of working out what it ultimately means when you're working to, you know, sell to the United States market. But reviewers for things like Delectable have now become influencers, for instance, where getting content generation out there is becoming really, really important because at the end of the day, as the critics become less and less important at a grassroots level, it's these micro-influencers that exist on platforms like this that, that can actually help get conversations started. Interesting. And so in terms of the specializations that it is required for a PR firm focused on wine and spirits. How does that differ from consumer packaged goods PR? Once again, as someone who's grown up in the wine industry for my entire life, you either walk the walk and talk the talk or you don't. You know, fake it till you make it can only get you so far. And with something as niche and deep as the wine industry, really, really have to have relationships that are built on something solid. It can't just be an occasional, oh, hey, I saw you at an event. You really have to work hard to create the goodwill where the people who matter can actually talk to you like a peer. You know, it's not a simple transactional, you know, engagement. It really, really is about, oh, hey, you know, I've known you for a long time. We share the same interests. You know stuff. Let's work together. We operate in a world where there's a, a harmonic need for everyone to be engaging and offering something beneficial. Writers need good content. PR people you know, need to have these conversations and the outlets to get that content out there. So it, it really, really is important to make sure that those relationships are real and they're long-lasting. In terms of working with specialty magazines, because there's quite a few of them, and wine critics, which there's more and more now than ever, how does the PR firm help connect those dots for a winery or a wine brand? Is that something that you guys are hands-on or hands-off with? It's a combination. You know, obviously, the, the talent really, really lies within the winery itself. You know, the stories are there to be extrapolated and they're there to be told. You know, you're not going to try to sell something that isn't real, that isn't authentic, that doesn't exist, that the winery themselves can tell. But what we can do is try to bridge the philosophical gap into the how and the why. I think, you know, when it comes to critics, sometimes if you don't have the connections to tell the story, all you see is product in a bottle. And face value, product in a bottle, you know, valuation can only give you so much. When you learn the how, the why, the raison d'etre for, for actually doing what's in the bottle, all of a sudden you can actually come at a conversation 
and potentially a, a scoring or a rating in a new way because now you better understand the mindset. It wasn't just an arbitrary decision that you made a wine that wanted to get 90 points. It's like, well, this is how I make wine. This is who I am. This is who we are. And there's no changing that. And this is why product XYZ looks like product XYZ. And have you seen the impact of these specialty magazines or communities change over time or dilute or they just morphed? Because I know a lot of critics have basically spun off to do their own thing. They were maybe part of one group and now there's a a host of new choices. Well, I think you're definitely seeing, I think, a changing of, of generational consumption driving who they're trying to target now. The collectors, the connoisseurs, the people who spent, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars to be at Vertigala or these major, major events are are aging out. And you need a lot more followers now who can migrate you onto the cheaper, more efficient publishing platforms that are digital. So you're seeing a lot of the publications now catering to a younger audience where they're talking about A, value wines, B, connectability, you know, reach us out on our app, rate this wine and connect it back to the product in some way, shape or form. So there's definitely an embracing of technology because they realize that, you know, traditional publishing models right now can't sustain the aging consumer that perhaps carried them the last 20 years. So when brands come to you, especially with this evolving landscape of digitization and different you know, social media influencers or other things. What are their goals that they want to achieve when they sign a retainer with you guys? That's a hard one to answer because people still forget that, you know, if you take out the major sort of, you know, conglomerates of the world, the Kendall Jacksons and the Gallows, you know, these are agrarian farmers at the end of the day. And when you spend half of your life out in a field toiling the soil, you know, you're not really looking at sort of metrics on the social media side. You know, so much fundamentally is based on the, the very sort of robust measurements of, you know, impressions, sales. And the PR part, you know, is kind of balancing on that wire to say that what we can give you is something actionable that will get you closer. The technology is slowly coming together to potentially bridge that gap now where you can say we brought X amount of people to your doorstep or a doorstep. and now we are able to actually track the return on investment based on basket sales that came about from that traffic load. So, you know, I think that where, you know, a lot of social media is going now is coming to that final ROI moment. We weren't there three years ago, four years ago, or perhaps people just weren't listening to what they needed to really sort of get that final loop closing moment. But the pandemic has has pretty much brought us face to face with the fact that we need to be tracking everything. And that final conversion to sale is the holy grail right now. Does that apply to more traditional media as well? Because there are ways now where, you know, even if it's just a referral code or referral mention or something like that, where if someone reads your ad or your article in the Wall Street Journal and they put that in, is that something that you wish you saw or had that relationship with your clients? Yes and no. I think, you know, there's a right amount of data and there's a wrong amount of data. I think that, you know, as I mentioned before, we kind of live in this sort of harmonic world in which writers are being forced now to play into the digital game, which is one where it's like, you know, money per click. So offering content that allows them to make their money allows them to still provide great content, 
that allows your messaging and your clients, you know, general products to sort of meet somewhere in the middle is really, really the, the best case scenario for everyone. Then you can tack on little elements on top of that if budget's there. But right now, I think on the PR side of things, I like to separate media and the social media sort of element because at the end of the day, the media have a role to play and the relationship that we have with them allows for sort of once again, a, a smooth and, and trustworthy way to get content out there. If you want to sort of, you know, buy into a publication's, you know, advertising sponsorship services that allow for connection to point of sale, that's great. But that really, really should be a secondary element that is decided upon by the client if they decide that the messaging and the media relations side of thing is only 50% of the problem. What is a normal relationship look like between a wine brand and a PR firm? Does it vary greatly by what they're looking for in terms of services or the size of the client? So how would you define like a typical relationship and which kind of winery should be using PR? I think we're a kind of a resource-based business, much like perhaps the legal profession. The amount of hours you put in, the amount of a team you can build to be able to service a client does get tied, obviously, to a financial sort of element. We also see that, you know, there's also a geographic difference in, in the kind of relationship that people want as well. For instance, the European clients tend to have a little bit more trust, I guess, by way of the fact that there is an ocean between us. <laughs> the fact that they're hiring an American agency rather than a European agency is already indicative of the fact that they believe an American agency knows what they're doing. It doesn't mean, obviously, you don't have to be sending emails, on the phone, reassuring a client, and just making sure that you're putting deliverables in front of them that, that make them feel comfortable you know, moving forward. Whereas, say, perhaps the domestic clients, you know, those based in California, Washington, Oregon, fight you're fighting is like, well, you know, Calandron Partners is based in New York. Why did I hire you versus a local agency who I can go have a coffee with down the road? So it's a different geographic battle now where instead of an ocean between us, we have a piece of land, but the piece of land means that I can get to you anytime I want, whenever I want, by email or phone, because it's only, you know, a maximum of three hours difference. So I think for a domestic relationship, you really, really, really need to be, you know, on 24-7, even if it's just, you know, updates to just check in, just general updates of what's happening in the greater environment for press, and also just finding ways to be partners. The European agencies may have kind of, you know, here's the money, go do your job, whereas the domestic clients are, uh, you know, we consider you an extension of our team here in Napa, for instance. How are you earning your keep? Let's be partners on something. And what are some of the criteria, like say I'm a wine brand and I'm mom and pop and I'm starting to get national distribution, I'm starting to get some good press. Like at what point should I start engaging? Like what are the criteria that you look for? Like, hey, you should be considering getting a PR firm if you meet these, you know, three or four criteria. Volume is really, really important because I think the best PR agencies are the, are the ones that can say, hey, you're not ready yet. You have a great story, you have a great product, but we don't want to be taking precious dollars away from what you can be doing to grow your own business. So I think, you know, volume and access and availability are the most important things where if a mom and pop winery has some key channels, some key markets, which you can lean into pretty heavily, 
know, you don't need to spend the earth to be able to start delivering, you know, awareness and visibility for them that can help grow them to another level. It's more just about making sure that they are in the right mind space to be able to act upon that business growth, take it further. Because I think everyone's disappointed when they don't understand the realities of what PR can and can't do. And if they don't understand PR, they expect a, a magic panacea, everyone loses. Everyone loves the magic panacea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll take two of those if you've got them. You know. Does it differ if the business model is direct-to-consumer versus trade? I think so. We're finding it's a lot more cost-efficient to be able to run DTC. You can be a little bit more creative. You can take advantage of the economies of scale of doing things without having to have face-to-face anything. You know, So much of it can be built into advertising. Whereas when you work with the trade, there is an added layer now of not only just separating the messaging of what works for consumer, but also developing the message that works for trade. You've got to you know, build the goodwill with trade. You have to be in front of them all the time to showcase what is unique and special and worthy of displacing something else on their list. You know, If they only have a finite number of placings on their list for a Napa Cabernet, you better come to the table with something that can move something off that list and have you join it. So there is a very, very different set of I think, priorities that one needs to sort of understand and and be able to sort of budget out if you want to sort of make your way in the trade. Do the services that you offer for domestic versus international clients uh, vary greatly or are they relatively similar to each other? I think they're relatively similar. Like, you know, at the end of the day, the end channels are the same. You know, it doesn't matter if, you know, it's a champagne producer looking to get on a restaurant list or a champagne producer trying to meet the champagne critic or a Napa producer trying to meet, you know, the Napa critic. I think at the end of the day, the results should be the same across the board. You do obviously have some differences when you start talking DTC, because the DTC market here in the United States is is, is way more advanced than in Europe. And when European clients are trying to sort of find ways to hack the three-tier system, you know, you have a, a much more limited number of offerings to be able to try to hit that, you know, direct import market, that subscription service element. So I think you get to be a little bit more uh, creative if if you're a European client, but it's a lot more straightforward when you're domestic. Got it. And in terms of pricing and commitment, so if I'm a wine brand and I'm going to start to engage in a PR firm, like what kind of budget should I be imagining and what kind of time commitment should I be looking at? It varies across the size of the agency. You know, when you're a a small boutique agency, you know, you have a small scale to be able to do multitasking with everyone on the team. I think when you start to get to beyond 15 to 20 people, retainers become a lot more important because you get to specialize the kind of talent that you actually get to have on your team. You know, are you buying a VP services who can get you a one-on-one meeting with Tom Matthews at the Wine Spectator? You're also buying the capabilities at a bigger agency of in-house social media or digital media departments, creative departments. You're also talking about now a much more advanced level of metrics potentially that are being offered. So you do get what you pay for fundamentally as you grow to a bigger agency. Now, that doesn't mean that that stays the same. You know, when you start to move to a generalist, there are opportunities that come through that, but you also have dissipation when you start to get less niche, because all of a sudden now, 
you're not really, really using your one bullet to get what you need. It's the people who are doing it might need more tries to get it right. So I think that's kind of where Colangelo and Partners kind of makes itself a, a pretty unique offering in that we have one foot in the boutique world. You know, I remember when we were a 12 person agency, you know, but we also have one big foot in the midsize agency world where we can offer the in-house capabilities, but still the niche specificity of, of talking the talk, walking the walk and having those relationships. So in terms of time commitment, though, it sounds like some of the, the work that you do with brands takes some time to pan out. Or if you're working with a publication that they're planning that six months in advance, what is the kind of like ballpark time commitment that like an engagement or retainer looks like? Is that like on a yearly scale or more? Yeah, I think you know, the longer the runway, the better it is to plan out the more strategic stuff, because I think we like to work on a yearly retainer system. And that way we can actually develop strategies that deliver much greater content. You know, when you're talking about sort of feature stories and luxury publications, these are things that, like you said, require that sort of editorial build out to ensure that you're actually A, making that issue, but you also have enough time to build out the asset delivery, the experience delivery, the navigation of the story ideation. These are things that take time. The payoff is real and the payoff is good, but you need a much longer runway to make that happen. So when you get that big feature story and you have the payout, how do you communicate that ROI to the wine brands that have paid you this retainer? It's a really interesting question because it's changing pretty rapidly. You know, before it used to be about page space. Historically, you know, you get out your ruler and you count on the newspaper how many inches is your client's, you know, blurb. What we're seeing right now is it moved away from that to some pretty kind of robust metrics because once again, when digitization came in and, and you, you found that online articles were coming as prevalent, if not more prevalent than print, you had some pretty blocky UVM circulation that didn't give you much. Where we're kind of shifting to now at Calandron Partners, and we have been doing that for a little while now, is share of voice. That's becoming really, really important. So you know, the way I kind of view it is, you know, you're building in multipliers into a deliverable. It's like uh, you're in Mario Brothers and you get like the mushroom and all of a sudden you can grow. <laughs> Have you got a quote in there? Have you got pictures? Are you in the headline? Is there a call to action where there's a link to purchase or a link to wine searcher? Is there the ability to contact the winery and, and create conversations that way? And the more these kind of multipliers you can build in, the much closer you can show a client that you're A, delivering something that's more real, and B, you're building messaging pillars. You know, If you say the four things that we want to deliver in 2020 are messages one, two, three, four, and an article features you know, messages one, two, three, four, all of a sudden now you can start collecting that data and saying, are we improving your positioning on that message in this year? And if we are, do you want to take that further in 2021? Or do you want to change that? But once again, we're able to track it now to say you are improving your brand messaging perception of the brand by just repetition, repetition, repetition. That's interesting. Do you think you could share with us a few specific examples of you know, accomplishments you're the most proud of with one or more of your clients? I've been in the industry a long time and it feels like forever. And, and there's been a, a lot of really, really great things I can definitely say. 
have been highlights. A couple of years ago, we were working for the Portuguese Cork Association. So basically the makers of, of cork products of fine wine. We did a couple of activations which were really, really unusually good for a type of client like that. One of them was we supported an actual find of historic turn-of-the-century Madeiras in New Jersey, had them resealed with cork. The cork guys came over from Portugal. It was done you know, under perfect conditions. It was filmed for TV. It was covered in all the top publications. And so these were like from Hamilton's era, these wonderful Madeiras that were still in perfect condition. We worked with Christie's. We sold them. We created a museum exhibition to support cork. So they got value to say that, you know, cork is something that's traveled through time. It's helped keep some of the greatest wines connected to America's history alive. And that was a really, really quite a big thought out blue sky project that we were able to just knock out of the park. We were also able to do, for instance, a seminar with Wine Spectator for every critic. To have every critic from Wine Spectator in a room, we did a cork uh, chemistry class. Um, with one of the, the world's leading scientists, Pascal Chardonnay. Money couldn't buy you, you know, having every single one of those critics in the room listening you know, as intently as they did that day. So that was fantastic. I can also think of just really fun things as well, like working with Napa Valley Vintners to, to bring Shake Shack to the party for a, a big restaurant promotion, working with Union Square Hospitality guys to help spread the word about Napa. That was a, a pretty big deal. So, you know, there's a lot of fun stuff that can happen PR if, if you're able to think creatively, but also find tactical solutions to get it done. Interesting. I think those kind of synergies of bringing those different things that are kind of off of the industry, but tangentially related can be quite compelling. A good PR person finds a way to challenge themselves every year. You know, can you do something that takes your agency forward, that takes the industry forward, that takes a conversation forward? you know, that's beyond regular channels. And that kind of goal setting is what allows you to sort of think big and keep a a client for longer because they know that you're thinking not only of what they're doing today, but how to get them where they want to be in six years time. You know, these are the short to medium term things that make you feel like a partner. It's like I'm seeing ahead of your sort of, your, your numbers and I know how to get you to your number Utilizing PR, all you got to do is have a little faith and just, uh, you know, let's be creative together. So when we were doing some research to try to highlight a couple of agencies, like Colangelo and Partners is one of the top most known in the space, but there's a lot of fragmented, more boutique PR firms in this space. And I'm curious on maybe why is that? Is that PR in general and not just the wine industry? Or is that a nature of it being so customized for wine? And then my follow-up would be like, how does Colangelo and Partners differentiate themselves from that myriad of choices? What keeps the industry alive and interesting is that we all come from like pretty big, well-known boy bands at the end of the day. And then you have someone who decides to go solo, you know, if, if the Justin Timberlake never left in sync, you know, in sync would be this kind of big global phenomenon still. But Justin Timberlake decided to set up his own shop and people came to Justin Timberlake and said, you know, that's where the hits are. Similar sort of thing. You know, there's a lot of boutique agencies because there are a lot of talented individuals out there and talented individuals who have their own specialty their own way of relating to clients, you know, it could be someone who has an expertise in just French, you know, categories, and that's what they decide to focus on. It could be someone who just says, you know, I just really, really, really want to focus on small family wineries that deal with 
X, natural wineries only, for instance. And so I think there's something where all of a sudden now, when you have kind of these sort of niche agencies with niche skill sets, all of a sudden now everyone has a solution, no matter how different you are, whether you're a winery from Georgia or, you know, from Bolivia, there'll always be someone there who actually knows your market pretty well. And as you start to begin to grow yourself, you know, you may graduate from that person or that agency, but it doesn't mean that, you know, you can't make it in the United States because, you know, there's no one who knows who you are, what you do or what you want to achieve. And the reason you see a lot of PR agencies list their previous clients, is that because they maybe outgrew that boutique and are now looking to step up and get a different, like a larger firm? Is that, I mean, you see a lot of people list their past clients, which is a really interesting phenomenon. Yeah, I'm, I'm not a big fan of that myself, but I understand why. You know, at the end of the day, being able to say that you've got experience in that category is very important for, you know, the next person who comes along from that particular category that says, I want to be next in line to follow, you know, so-and-so's footsteps. I think it's also important to show that the world of PR isn't static. You know, like any agency business, it doesn't matter whether you're advertising or a legal firm or PR, executives change, leadership changes, whether it be on your side or the client side. And that can have a pretty chaotic chain of events on, on, on whether an, an agency gets retained. COVID is a perfect example of a disruptive force now that plenty of good agencies are either losing clients or you know, having retainers cut back, not because of poor work, but because of market side issues. So you know, I don't think it's the fault of any particular agency to lose a client, but still list them. I think it's just one of those things to say that you know, the experience is there. Come talk to us about, about that experience if you want to know more. And in terms of hiring, so when you guys go to look to hire more PR associates, are you looking for wine professionals and training them on PR? Or are you looking for PR professionals and training them on wine? I think it's a combination of both. You know, I consider myself more of a wine person in PR than a PR person in wine. And that brings a different set of capabilities. I studied, you know, PR in, in school, but I worked in wine since I was 15. So that came first. I think there's a different level of, of passion that comes along with wine people that you bring into a PR role. Being an ex-wine writer, an ex-som, once again, if the language is there, if you can talk it, the shift from vocal to written isn't always a challenge that people think it is. You know, when people on the server side of the industry find themselves in a rut and they're like, do I want to work the floor my whole life? PR is a fantastic option. If you can just bring that passion to the table, you know, if you're speaking to a critic, a wine writer, even just a consumer, it's pretty evident that you care about what it is that you do and you know it, you know, pretty deeply like what's happening with your client. So that's always a great thing. But PR skills are also really, really important as well. So when you have people who just know the fundamentals, the fundamentals can be taught to those who don't know the fundamentals and the passion can be taught to the people who do know the fundamentals. So I think having a nice combination of both of those type of people allows for, you know, I think both sides to grow together. Well, with COVID's impact on the restaurant industry, you might have just got another couple thousand applicants for oh, yeah. a few your job. Do you know what? There's, pl- there's plenty of psalms out there, I think, who could use a job. And, you know, PR agencies should be one of the first places you look. You know, if sales isn't your thing, knock on every PR agency's door because I'm sure there's someone who's willing to take a chance on someone who's connected and loves what they do and is excited about working with new clients, whether they're from 
Umbria in Italy or Lake County in California. You know, there's a story there. There's a passion there. There's excitement there. You just got to you know, find the people who just like that. That passion seems to be a major differentiator from the CPG PR firms from going into marketing. It's hard to get people excited about Hellman's mayonnaise. You know, people are going to be like, yo, mayonnaise right. or die. And they're like, just calm down. You know, you know we're, we're all here to do a job and <laughs> we don't need frothy mayonnaise talk just, you know, ruining everything. You can get away with that in the wine world. People can be as excited as they want. And that's that's the fun part, you know, because it carries over to everyone else in the group. But it also, the excitement sort of suggests that, you know, people want to do the best work they can. I want to thank you for your time, Paul. At the end of every episode, we always ask our guests to, you know, think about a lasting trend versus a fizzling fad in relation to their industry and their space. Lasting trend, people still don't understand Zoom. <laughs> the last 10 minutes of every Zoom call is, is everyone just like awkwardly saying goodbye, bye, bye, and then just fumbling around to leave meeting. And that's going to last forever, sadly. I've been on too many Zoom calls to sort of, you know, see things getting better. Fizzling fad, I'd probably say in some ways, lazy virtual tastings is something that is going down the toilet pretty quickly because, you know, once again, Zoom fatigue is a real thing and people who don't craft interesting and innovative ways to get people engaged are really, really going to be, you know, the ones who get left behind. So any agency that isn't sort of mapping out strategy to make their, you know, press guests or trade guests feel like this is something unique and special that can take a conversation offline and then into the real world, that's a, a major problem. So, you know, I think people are going to be spending more money, being more creative, and you're going to see less lazy virtual tastings happening. That's a great fad. I 100% agree with that. For your lasting trend, you just have to be cutthroat the meeting host, such as an end meeting for all, and mic drop and bounce out. That's how you do it. Okay, lasting trend. <laughs> Podcasts like these. <laughs> there you go. Because once again, if people don't know how hard PR people work, we fizzle out and die. Awesome. Thank you. We'll take the plug. <laughs> Not a problem, guys. Thanks for joining us. If you loved this episode of X Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, cheers. <laughs>